I'm going to base my lesson this evening from Luke, the 15th chapter, and uh, most of my lesson is going to be narrated. Uh, I, I, I want to just give you a little bit of a, of a introduction before I begin the reading. I'll only read the first three verses of chapter 15. But this chapter contains what sometimes people think is three different parables. As far as I can tell, this is actually one parable. One parable with three parts, all spoken at the same time to the same audience and for the same purpose. And so it's very interesting. You know, one of the things that I have learned to just absolutely be excited about is, is a study of the parables of Jesus. In my work in the Philippines, I have several times just spent almost the whole three weeks teaching parables over there. Uh, and it, 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 it works in any situation. It works in every uh, kind of family, every kind of culture that you can imagine. No wonder people referred to him as the master. I'll read the first three verses and notice carefully because this sets the tone and gives us the reason for this parable being spoken. Luke 15, beginning at verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Now there's his audience. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, So the publicans and the sinners were the audience. But the reason Jesus spoke the, this, uh, uh, this uh, parable was because of the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus was unmerciful to the Pharisees and scribes. They were such hypocritical people. And they would always find something to complain about. They were the kind of people that, like my mother used to say, looked like they had been weaned on a pickle. They just were always unhappy about something. That just never did suit you know, for them to be, uh, for, for the Lord to be around. They could always find something to complain about. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. And I'm going to narrate these, uh, these parables. They're all familiar, but I think there's some things in these parables perhaps you haven't considered and haven't thought about, at least not in a long, long time. Have you ever wondered why Jesus spent so much time teaching the parables? Why is it so, that so, so much of what he said and so much of what he taught was in parabolic form? There's a very good reason for it. And if you haven't thought about it, you need to know this. You see, Jesus came to establish the kingdom. But in order to establish it, people had to know what the kingdom was all about. How in the world are you going to tell somebody about something that they have no clue what it is? Now, you know, I used to use the illustration that if I came to town and said that I'm going to uh, build a factory that builds widgets, how can I tell people what widgets are because nobody ever heard of them? But somebody told me one time, there is actually a, a, a factory that's making widgets now, so I'll have to use a different illustration. But nobody knew what the church was going to be like. Nobody understood the, uh, the idea of the kingdom. 
And so Jesus used parables. Now, a parable is a laying alongside. You lay alongside something that you don't understand, something that you do. And you go from ground that is accepted to ground that is unknown. That's what a parable does. And when you understand that the unknown ground is actually similar to the ground that you accept and understand, then you can have an idea of what the kingdom is all about. So these people had to learn about the kingdom. And nearly every one of the parables of Jesus in some way or the other deals with the kingdom of God, the establishment of it, the way it works, the way it's going to, uh, you know, to develop and so on. And so this, uh, <coughs> excuse me, this parable that Jesus teaches in the 15th chapter is so interesting because here the publicans and the sinners came to hear him. I've always wondered just why the writer, why the Holy Spirit changed and, and, and called publicans and sinners because actually they were both groups of people were sinners. Publicans were usually a, a group of Jews who had sold themselves traitorously to work for the Roman government. And they collected taxes. And they were very flagrant in their disobedience. They were little more than thugs and, and blackmailers. For instance, if you owed $100, we'll say, in taxes, the publican would come to you and say, now you owe $100. But, it, but I know something about you, something that you don't want told. If you don't want me to tell that, you pay me 400 and that way I'll keep my mouth shut. It was just a, a form of blackmail. And this may be one of the reasons why that the publican that Jesus encountered on the road to Jericho or through Jericho that day stood before the Lord and said, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Well, that's what they commonly did, was sold four times as much. And so that could be part of it. Linwood always thought that that particular parable of that particular publican was a good publican, and that could be. I read one time that there somewhere somebody found an honest publican, and that it was so strange and it was so remarkable that a monument was built to him because nobody had ever heard of a good publican before. So whoever the, whoever the sinners were, they were different kinds of sinners apparently than the publicans. But the publicans and the sinners came to listen to Jesus. Now here's an interesting thing. <coughs> In that day and time, even if you were not a follower of Christ, even if you did not believe in Christ as the Son of God, you almost certainly had heard of Jesus. He had become something of a celebrity because of the miracles that he performed. What he did was just incredible. There was just no way to explain it other than this man is of God. So everybody came to hear him. But along with those people who came to hear him because they wanted to know what he had to say, along with them came the scribes and the Pharisees, religious people. They were, they were Jewish zealots, so to speak. The scribes, of course, were the individuals who wrote down the law. And oh, they knew the law. They, they could quote it by the hour. And uh, the Pharisees, of course, were those really, really strict, strict people. And Jesus said one time, you know, you can, you can 
listen to what they say because they know the law, but don't, don't do as they do because they say and do not. Well, we know a lot of people today that are like that. They uh, say one thing and they exact a, a great deal of strictness from you. But as far as their own life, they may not be so strict. <clears throat> in fact, I remember when I was just a boy down in Lebanon on Saturday, we would have a lot of what was called street preachers. And those fellows would sit on the corner out there, the old timers called it Spit and Whittle Corner, and they would argue the Bible for half of Saturday. Most of the time, none of them were Christians, not members of anything. They studied the Bible because they wanted to argue the Bible. It was like playing checkers or something to them. And so these street preachers would get out and talk, and then these, these fellows would sit on the corner, and they would listen, and then they would argue about the points that they disagreed with him about. Well, that's kind of the way the Pharisees and the scribes were. There was no way you were going to please them. They were going to be unhappy about something that just, you could just count on that. <clears throat> so, Jesus is speaking these, this parable and these three parts of parables to the, to the Pharisees and the scribes. And the publicans and the sinners were there to hear it, and they were witnesses to it. Now, <clears throat> you know, feverish activity can be aroused in, in, in few ways quicker than to utter the dreaded herald, lost. We're coming into the time of year in California where the Sierra Nevada mountains are when almost every year somebody gets lost up there in a terrible snowstorm. And some of the, some of the snows in that part of the world <clears throat> on that mountain range can accumulate in the course of a, of a snowy season. Uh, we can get as much as 65 feet of snow. And so if somebody is lost up there, Unless you find them quickly, they won't be found until spring. And of course, by then, it is way too late. And so Jesus is dealing with some people who are lost. And in this uh, series of uh, illustrations in this parable, the lost are described in a heart-rending and climactic order. Let's look at this, at, at this parable. Jesus began by saying that a certain man had a hundred sheep, and he lost one. And he said, you know, uh, he left the ninety and nine in the wilderness and went out to look for that one which was lost. That's an incredible feat. If you own a hundred sheep and just one is missing, you're really going to have to be on the ball or you're never going to know that that sheep is missing. But this fellow's figured it out. He's watching for that. He's looking for that because he knows that one of, the, one of the crying problems with sheep is that they wander away. Unless you're just on top of it, they will, some of them will just disappear. So Jesus said he goes and he searches for this. And when he has found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. And he cometh to his friends and he said, come and rejoice with me for I have found that sheep which was lost. And he said, there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. And then I probably, as he looked out over the audience, he maybe saw some women out there. And he said, either what woman of you, if she has ten pieces of silver and she loses one of them, will not light a candle and sweep the house and search diligently until she has found that piece of money which was lost. And when she finds it, she says to her friends and neighbors, come and rejoice with me, for I have found that piece of money which was lost. And again, he repeated, 
Joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, over ninety and nine that need, needeth no repentance. And then he begins in what is usually called the parable of the prodigal son, which is actually just another part of the same parable. And I hope to tie this together in a moment so that you can see why I feel so certain this is the case. I won't tell all the story at this time, but he says, he tells how that a certain man had two sons. And the younger of the sons came to the father and said, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now, the father really didn't have to do that. But understand that this father in this parable is analogous to the father in heaven. And the father in heaven is full of grace. Ordinarily, the older son would have inherited first and then the younger. But this time he divides between his children his living. Not long after that, this younger son takes the part that was his and he sets off into a far country, the far country of sin. And it was there that he lost everything that his father had given him. Now that's the story and I'll finish it in just a little bit. But let's look at an overall value. I want to tie this thing together for you if I can. Jesus begins with the fellow that has a hundred sheep and he loses one. Well, that's just one of a hundred. That's not much. It's only a 1% attrition rate. That's not very much at all. A congregation of a hundred people, if somebody is missing, it's possible that we might not even realize they're missing unless it's somebody we know and wonder where they are. And so Jesus graduates from this to the woman that has 10 pieces of silver and loses one of them. Now it's, it's improving. It's getting larger. This represents a 10% loss rate. And finally, he talks about the father that has two sons. Oh, this is getting good. He has two sons and he loses one. That is a 50% loss rate. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus built this like he did? I don't think it's an accident at all. In fact, the older I get, the more certain I become that almost nothing in the scriptures, and especially in the teaching of Christ, is accidental or coincidental. The greatest loss rate of all, no search. Great search for the one sheep that was missing. Great search for the piece of money that was missing. No search for the boy. The most valuable thing in the world that's lost, the greatest amount of loss, but no search. Now let's look at this and think about this a little bit. As I mentioned to you a moment ago, sheep wander away. I never did raise sheep. I helped my grandfather when I was a boy uh, take care of his sheep. And uh, I had to do some things I didn't enjoy. But one thing I learned in helping take care of the sheep was the fact that they just kind of disappeared. Almost out, out under your eyes, you look up and there was 15 or 20 there a minute ago. And you look up now and there's not a one hardly in sight. They just wander away. And I suspect that this may be the reason that God's people through the years in the Old Testament as well are called the sheep. If you'll remember when Jesus sent out the disciples the first time, he said, don't go to the Gentiles, but go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, there was always a lot of those. 
And so that's what they did. And it would only be later that the Gentiles were brought into this, uh, into this equation. Well, the manner in which these sheep were lost was probably because through inattention of the shepherd. <clears throat> but you know, when you look at the woman who lost her piece of money, here's a little different situation. The sheep wandered away. That's what sheep do. But this piece of money that was lost, it didn't wander off, did it? No. It was lost because of her carelessness. And there isn't anything, I think, more frustrating to me than to be working on a project. And I lay a tool down and I know just exactly where I put that tool. And when I need it and I look for it, it isn't there. And I jokingly say to my wife, I think the elves have carried off my tools. Well, no, they didn't. I carelessly put it somewhere, didn't remember it. Well, that's the way it was with this money. Her carelessness caused this to be, to be lost. Now listen, there's a group of people in that audience that's going to be affected by this. And there's a group of people that's going to be affected by this. Those, those publicans and sinners, very likely many of them might have been characterized by the sheep that wandered away. Because actually, the publicans and the sinners got very little attention. Jesus would be one of the few who would sit down with them and talk with them and teach them and eat with them. Most would not even deign to look at them. So that, those people might have been characterized by this. But there was a group of people there that day. The Pharisees and the scribes who this fits to a T. They were careless. They were hateful. They were overbearing. They were difficult to get along with. You ever know anybody like that in the church? Sure you have. It just seems like there's always some people like that. I was reading just today, in fact, of a fellow that the, the writer said of him. He, he came out one day and he said he had a face on that would sour milk. Well, that's just the way some people are. They're just difficult to get along with. Well, that's the way the, the Pharisees and the scribes were. And because of their carelessness, many people, like some of these perhaps, were lost. Because of their carelessness, there were people among the Jewish nation that were no longer following God. They found it impossible to keep up with all of the rules and all of the, uh, you know, all of the uh, insistencies of the Pharisees and the scribes. Oh, don't eat without washing your hands. Now, I have to be careful about that because I don't like to eat without washing mine. But I don't think it's wrong. I don't make it a test of fellowship. I don't get involved in religious discussions if you don't happen to see it that way. It's just that I've traveled in some parts of the world that I have learned if you want to stay healthy, you better keep your hands clean and keep them away from your face. Well, it was that kind of thing except they went one step further and they made it a religious thing. Oh, it, you had to do that. And you had to wash the outside of the cup as well as the inside because, oh, if you didn't, it would somehow or the other be defiled. And this is why Jesus probably said, it's not what goeth in, but what comes out that defiles a man. Well, this probably is part of the reason here. And this woman's carelessness lost her money. 
It didn't go anywhere of its own volition. She lost it. And you know, this really, I think, points up to those who, you know, the Pharisees and the scribes were leaders among the Jews. Religious leaders. And this points up to the, to the necessity of leaders in the Lord's church today of giving the members responsibility, of giving the members credit that they deserve, of giving the members the attention that everybody needs. You know what I've learned because I've raised some children? <laughs> I've learned that if you set an open can of paint, I'm a painter by trade, if you set an open can of paint in a room and you tell the children, don't you touch that paint. When you go away and you come back, no telling what all has been painted. I never will forget, and I hope I have the time to tell this, when our daughter was just about three or about, about three, I was refinishing a set of bedroom furniture for one of the church members as a wedding gift, a surprise. And I had it in the garage, right beside a brand new Chevrolet Impala that I had just bought, my pride and joy. And so my daughter came out and she picked up a piece of my sandpaper and she was going to sand on the furniture. She saw me sanding on it and I said, you know, you probably better not sand on that furniture. And so I went to work the next day. And when I came home that night, she hadn't sanded the furniture, but she sanded one of the doors down on my new car. That's the way children are. If they're not given the kind of oversight that they need and require, you're going to have a problem of some sort. So don't be surprised when the leadership of a congregation, whether here or anywhere else, if you ignore the members, don't be surprised when you run into a problem because probably that's exactly what's going to happen. But now then looking here, there's a great search made for both of these. The woman just tore the house apart looking for that piece of money. And the shepherd went and found no telling how far he had to go to get this one sheep that was lost. Just wandered away. But looky here. This boy, this is such a sad, sad thing to me. This boy, oh, you can say all kinds of bad things about him. He was a young dandy. He was a smart aleck. He was irreverent. He didn't have the respect for his father that he should have had. I know all of that. And he asked his father for money. <laughs> I've often wondered what would have happened if I'd ever gone to my dad and said, Dad, give me what's coming to me. Whatever it would have been, I don't think there would have been any money involved. But the father gave the sons his money. Now look at this young man as he goes into this far country. He's down there, and it isn't long because of his flagrant living until he's broke. And so he joins himself to a citizen of the country. Now here's a young Jewish boy who goes into a far country. This is indicative, you see, that these are Gentiles. So he joins himself to a Gentile. Not a good move. And this Gentile puts him out in the fields feeding pigs. An unclean animal to a Jew. They couldn't eat them. 
Oh, they wouldn't have anything to do with the pig. This young man is down there feeding him and becomes so hungry that he would really have been tempted to eat what they were leaving. Now, I can tell you, I have raised pigs. I have been hungry, but I've never been hungry enough to eat what they ate. This young man was that hungry. And suddenly Jesus said he came to himself. And this is, I think, so interesting. People sometimes say, oh, I just love that because that shows the grace of God. And that shows that how that God's grace will always cover you, you know, and no matter what you do or where you go, God's grace will cover your sins. That's just not so. If you look at this parable, the grace of this father applied to this young man when? When he came to himself and when he went home to daddy's house. That's when his grace came into effect. And so a young man who leaves the church rebelliously, stubbornly, refusing to follow the scriptures. Now you can go after him if you want to. I don't think it's wrong. But I'm a little bit like Linwood used to say, I think you just as well save your breath to cool your soup. Because until that young man is ready to come home, what you say is going to fall on deaf ears. He's not going to listen to you. He don't want to come home. But this young man came to himself. The situation became so bad that he came to himself. And he said, here's what I'll do. I'll go home and I'll say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And that's right. He wasn't worthy to be called his father's son. He had dragged his father's name through the muck and the mire. He had dishonored everything that he had been raised to, uh, to believe in. And now he's broke. He's lost his father's money. And he has lived a riotous life, Jesus said. If you want to do a little study, it'll be interesting for you to find out that the term riotous living is not far akin and not far distant from what his older brother would later accuse him of, of spending his money on immorality. Could very well have been. But that's neither here nor there at this point. He decided that he would go home and just make a clean breast of it. And you know, when I was just a little boy, I used to hear Fred Kerbo preach on what he called the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, you know, I think when this young man finally decided to get up and go home, <laughs> he said, I think I can just see him throwing that slop bucket all the way across the hog pen. I wouldn't doubt if that's not pretty close to right. This young man was going home and nobody was going to keep him from doing it. He was determined. And so he starts home. Now Jesus changes his perspective. He's no longer talking about the boys, but he changes to the father. And it's almost like the father is working around the front of the place, maybe along the road. I don't know how long this young man was gone, but long enough to lose everything that he had. But one day as he works out there, he spies a familiar sight. Oh, he looks different than when he left. You know he does. Because the father says, bring shoes and put on his feet. That means he was barefoot. Bring a ring and put on his finger. He probably had one when he left, but he doesn't have one now. Bring a robe and put on his back. Is that what the Bible says? 
Look over there carefully. You'll see that the father said, bring the best robe. Now there's a little word that will escape you. Bring the best robe. And I wondered and wondered about what that best robe might be. I think I have a clue. You know, over in Revelation, the uh, 7th chapter and verse 14. There the Apostle John talks about a vision that he saw in heaven. And in this vision, he sees people who are in white robes. And somebody says, who are they? And he said, these are they who have come through great tribulation. And they have made their robes white. Are you with me? In the blood of the Lamb. That's your best robe. It has to be. It has to be. Because Jesus is giving a lesson that deals with the return of a wayward child of God. This is a, a wayward son. He's come home. And the father says, bring the best robe and put on it. Do you realize that if you're away from the father's house tonight... Do you realize that if you return tonight, the only robe that God is willing for you to have is the best one? He'll give you one that's made white in the blood of the Lamb. You don't get any better than that. That's the best. Has to be the best. And so... This father sees him and all of this takes place. Bring a ring and put on his finger and shoes and bring the best robe. And so this great merrymaking and great party takes place. And then the elder brother comes. And this elder brother is so interesting to me. He never left home. But I can tell you he was just as lost as the one who did. He's not a bit better. Not a bit better. This young man, when he got home, he said, Father, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Just make me, get that, make me one of the hired servants. Let me tell you something. When you have a, a member of the church who leaves the church, especially through rebelliousness and stubbornness, as this young man left home, when you have a church member who comes back to the Lord and he says, I'll do anything. I'll be anything. Make me. Boy, you've got something then. There's no telling how great that person may be. There's no telling what a great preacher he might be. There's no telling what a great wife she may be or what a great mother she may be. If they're willing to just be made into what the Lord wants to make of them. Amazing, isn't it? Just make me as one of the hired servants. Well, I think that's so interesting. The elder brother comes and he's so angry. He doesn't like the idea at all that this young man's come back. The truth of it is he didn't want him to come back. There was that kind of bad feeling. What's he here for? He wouldn't even go in. And so the father gets one back and now the other one flies the coop. The older one now is out. 
And the old man goes and tries to, to, you know, to encourage him. Thou art ever with me and all that I have is thine and all of that. He didn't want to go in. He didn't want anything to do with this. He said, this thy son has returned. Not my brother, your son. You know, I used to always know I was in trouble when my mother would refer to me to my dad and say, your son has done this, that, or the other. I knew probably the ending was not going to be pleasant. Your son. That's the way this older brother was, but he meant it. He hated his younger brother. He didn't want him to come back. He represented embarrassment and he represented loss and he didn't want him to come back. Well, that's a kind of an interesting story, isn't it? Some Christians are that way. They, they think the matter out and they decide that they're angry at somebody and they don't want to get better. They don't want to feel differently. They leave the church deliberately, just like the younger son. They leave it rebelliously, just like the younger son. Maybe they fancy that somebody has hurt them. And I'll tell you this. If you're going to live the Christian life successfully, let me give you a newsflash. Somebody is going to hurt you. Somebody is going to mistreat you. Somebody is going to say the wrong thing about you. Someone is not going to give you the credit that you deserve. That's right. You can just go to the bank on that. If you're doing what you ought to do, you will receive some discouraging things. I'll just tell you that. Now, the Lord's people are the greatest people in the world, and I don't want to say anything that would make you think badly of them. That's certainly not the case. But if you're doing the right thing, there will always be some who will question your motives, at least. You can just count on that. That's just human nature. Well, that's the way it was here. The father, though, didn't follow the boy. He didn't send anybody after him. He grieved at his son's going. But all he did, as far as we know, is stay home and watch for him. And what a wonderful picture of the Father in heaven. If you're away tonight, he's waiting for you to come back. He's watching for you to come back. He wants you to come back. And it'll just make his day, so to speak, if you'll do that. That'll just absolutely make him feel so good about you. And the only road that he'll let you have is the best one. When you look at this uh, older son's attitude, look at him. His attitude toward himself is, poor little me, I've done all of these things for you and I have never transgressed thy commandment. Now, do you believe that? I don't. I've raised a son. I can tell you there is no such thing as a boy and probably no such thing as a daughter who doesn't at some point disobey your commandments. In fact, it's always seemed to me like that my son would just look for an opportunity to do that when he was little. But that's just kind of human nature. And this father, I think, didn't believe that either. But he says, I've worked so hard and look how little I'm appreciated. Yeah. That's probably true enough. Linwood used to tell a story about a mother that had a lot of children. I don't remember how many. 
And somebody asked her one time, said, which one of all of these children do you love the most? She thought a minute and she said, oh, I reckon the one that comes in last at night. That's right, isn't it? If you've raised children, you know what it's like when you lay there in the bed and you wonder when they're going to get home. And every time you hear a siren, it scares you. I remember that. I remember that. I was fortunate, but not everybody is. Sometimes bad things happen. Well, sometimes in the church, people have bad attitudes toward God, toward the church, toward the brethren, toward the lost, and even themselves. You know, it's always been, and I'm just about finished, it has always been a very discouraging thing to me to go to some place to hold a meeting, and I know that you all have worked hard to advertise this meeting, and I really appreciate that. But it has always discouraged me, maybe one of the greatest discouragements I've ever had as a gospel preacher, to go somewhere to hold a meeting, and you find that absolutely not one thing has been done. No sign, no, uh, no notice in the paper, Apparently nobody doing any personal work and telling people, come and hear brother so-and-so this week. He's going to be there and, and we hear he's a good preacher. And then we wonder why the meeting isn't successful. Well, it's not likely to be. It would just be unreal, really, if some great thing were to happen when we don't do anything to help it happen. And so I take my hat off to you, brethren. I know some of what you've done. I know that you've advertised, well, I got a flyer all the way in California. <laughs> My wife looked at that picture of me and she said, well, I'll say one thing. They could have probably got a better picture of you than the one they put on that flyer. But the people out here in this community, they don't care. They just know a meeting is going on. They know that somebody's going to preach the gospel here. And God bless you for asking them and inviting them in every way you know how to get them to come. Well, this is just a, a kind of a brief overview of this parable. But isn't it amazing the way the Lord ties the parables together? No wonder he was called master. Have you ever tried to make up a parable? It's kind of like trying to make up a proverb. I've tried. Mine don't come out too well. Uh, you know, a proverb is nothing more than a wise saying. And a parable is nothing more than what we've been talking about here. But it was well thought out and it had a purpose and it had a, you know, there was a goal in mind. And no wonder those people who heard Jesus talk that day learned to hate him. Because you see, right over here represents a lot of those people in the audience. Half of those people, maybe more than half, were away from God because of their own rebelliousness, rebelliousness, stubbornness, hatefulness, and disregard for the word of God. Some of those people, undoubtedly, maybe the Pharisees and scribes, were not saved that day, not following God, because they were careless. They were bad leaders. What a lesson for us in the church today. And then for the rest of us, what about those of us who just kind of wander aimlessly along, and we might be here on Wednesday night and we might not. And if we aren't, somebody may not even ask about us. That's wandering sheep. And the first thing you know, somebody says, whatever became a sister so-and-so? 
You know, I, I, sometimes you, you, if, when you live to be my age or older, you've been some places a lot of different times. <clears throat> and you go somewhere and you, you remember people that used to be there. You say, what happened to sister so-and-so? Well, I don't know. She just kind of disappeared. Yep. Wandering sheep. And what's wrong? No shepherd went to get her. There's always a work to do. There's always something to do in the Lord's church. Something for everybody to do. 